लोका समस्ता सुखिनो पवंथु The words are may all beings be happy may all my thoughts words and actions contribute in some way to the happiness of all beings Hey dude Jeep. Yeah. Wow, you have an age today. Oh, let's be clear. I have. I just said you haven't. Oh, you I have. have. <laughs> yeah, I can't see. I can't see that either. Is my audio good? I have this good new mic. I think it's good. Yeah, you sound great. Very clear. So tell me about you, Gina. I know oh, yeah. you're from New York. Are you from New York, or you started teaching in New York? I grew up in San Francisco and then lived in New York, went to college in New York and then lived in New York and did, yeah, started teaching in New York. But everyone thinks I'm from New York. Feels like I'm from New York. Um, I love New York. Yeah, so I started um, in my early 20s. Yoga really found me in a, you know, through a strange romantic love situation, but it really found me at a time when I, or, or that's, it was through a person, a man brought me to a class and that's how I ended up in a yoga room. I don't honestly know that I was looking for it, but what was the circumstance of that time was a pretty deep despair. It was just like a, you know, maybe a biochemical, maybe a karmic, something that you might identify as depression, but it was a pretty radical. I didn't, I definitely didn't go to class for the physical practice. I didn't really know why I was going to class, but pretty much in my very first practice, it all I felt like there was a there was a pivot to to life towards life uh and that I could choose that that in a way that I hadn't really ever known to be possible in my you know since I could remember since I was a kid and it was really the first class it's hard to explain why but it felt like I was sort of breathing my way in to certainly to my body um but in that embodiment to well-being or certainly that that it occurred to me that it was possible that I could cultivate a well-being it had not occurred to me as a possibility prior to that and it just started that was 2001 that was New York City six months later I watched the towers fall I was very close that was also a strange story I don't know if that's in the purview of this interview but the fact that I was very close it was the only time I had ever been in that location at 7 30 in the morning ever but we were very close and and then I was at a restaurant where I was a server, but I had never worked a morning shift and I just happened to be covering for somebody. Um, it was in Tribeca, it, was, it ended up being the southernmost point in the city that wasn't evacuated. Like a block below us was covered in ash. People ran up Barrack Street. And the restaurant became sort of a command center because you know cell phones weren't working and public phones were occupied. And so there were phone, all the phone lines and we were feeding people and trying to help people find people. And it was pretty massive. That really shaped me also. And so then, that was obviously September 11, 2001. And then I had been practicing yoga for six months, but two How old days. are you? How old was I then? Yeah. Uh, 24. Okay. Yeah. Now everyone's going to know how old I am. That's okay. <laughs> Take it out. <laughs> no, no, no. You can keep it on there. That's fine. Okay. Um, oh, God. <laughs> so all the ridiculous things I say are going to be included in this. Okay. I mean, that's what makes it good. I was, I was 24. Um, so that was 
So then two days later, September 13th, 2001, I was back home in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and there's this beautiful, so I'd been practicing very, you know, so my yoga life started and it was just on, but, but it was only, it was new. It was only six months in, but I had this very beautiful teacher who had a loft in Williamsburg at a time when yoga teachers could have lofts in Williamsburg. That was a different world. And she opened up her loft to have really whoever wanted to come, come. And it was a very strange time, obviously. It was a very dreadful time, but it was also very just surreal in the sense that, you know, no one was going anywhere and I was going to work or anything at that time in New York, but it, it just felt way, weird to wake up on the 12th and have like, like you're supposed to be like, you have breakfast now. Like it just was so strange. To, and so, so a lot of people showed up to this loft, not even necessarily, you know, partners and friends of people who are practicing yoga, but probably 200 to 250, I would guess. Like it was packed and it was this huge, huge loft. I'm not certain if that's a good assessment, but a lot of people. And we started chanting which most simply translates as, you know, may the world be free of suffering, which I've now chanted or said every single time I've ever taught in my life since. So we, so she, she, she had a harmonium and she had a beautiful singing voice and she led a lot of kirtan. So she started and it was, it started as these things start, which is call and response. So she would say a word and then a, we said a word and then a, two words and then two words and then the full line, the four words. And so it started like that and then it sort of swelled increasingly to be um, kind of a rounding chant where people were starting and stopping on their own and some people were lying down, lots of people of course were weeping and, and you know, and I was, I felt as many people did the, the healing possibility in it, but I had an experience there that is, is rather hard to describe, but I had an experience of, of awakening in the sense of my heart sort of included the entire universe in a way that I could never really explain, but it felt like an opening to where, you know, I've, I've glimpsed it very infrequently um, at that scale but really getting this sort of glimpse of the massive size of the operation, you know, without any adjuvant of like a psychotropic substance, really just getting the kind of macro event that it is, that is consciousness, not me specifically, obviously. And then when we returned from that, or when I sort of came back to like just being in that room, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a yoga teacher. I was just sort of, or not, or actually it was more like I am a yoga teacher, you know, and then I began the process. Obviously it was, it doesn't happen all at once. And, and, I felt called to it, but also I've developed the skill. So that's 20 years ago, like exactly. And so then I moved promptly after, like two months after to Argentina and to live at an ashram. It was a little bit of a swift, oddly aligned choice, but I ended up in a, a Shivananda ashram, which taught me a lot of things, including that that wasn't the right practice for me. And it was actually like a really hard experience. And I like broke out of it and went to eat a lot of like pizza and ice cream. Cause I just was like, this is too, this is so renunciatory. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I just was like, it's yoga. Right. And this is a, my sister was living in Argentina at the time. So that was like how I got down there. She was on an exchange program, but then I stayed for months and then I returned and at the start of 2012 did my first teacher training. And that was in New York. And then what? You did your oh, okay. training in New York and then you came to LA when? Just a year later. So I fin yeah. it was that whole calendar year of 2012 was teacher training. And then it was a long one. It was a beautiful one. We, she did such a beautiful job. We learned a lot of philosophy and a ton of practice. And you know, it was just a robust training. So middle of 2013, I moved to LA. And I was teaching, I had already started teaching in New York during teacher training, just doing private. And I would, was subbing at Bureau Yoga, which is where I had started my Anasara relationship with yoga. 
and where the teacher training was taking place. And then I moved to LA and I was the server still supplementally for several years, but I was teaching pretty much like right off the ground teaching on the east side and at several places. And then I stopped serving and then I've just been a yoga teacher. Ooh, I'm I mean, so moved by tears by your story of your heart oh, expanding in the yoga room with 200 people. It was I'm still there. <laughs> yeah, let's go there. I mean, that was a hard day, but it was really beautiful. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to jump from that so fast. I just, um, yeah, I, I recall it very, you know, uh, kinesthetically. Like, I, I can very much be there too. It was such a treasure among the great gifts of my entire life you know with that opening and did you have the, at that time have the words to understand what was actually happening or did that come years later I mean I still don't really exactly have the words you know that exists a little bit in the mystical non-world uh, field but no I did I, I had this I could have said it as well as I said it today which was you know still limited um and and the knowledge the information received of you're a teacher, you know, was just simple and clear. And it felt like, so it felt like that time had been an initiation. Feels like I was initiated into, obviously, I mean, this with no vanity, like I wasn't a teacher. I had to train to be a teacher and I'm still in development as a teacher 20 years later. That's an ongoing practice. But the, the, it, the knowledge that that was the path was so evident. It was just sort of like revealed, you know. Would you say that was your first experience of surrendering? Ooh, good question. Because I'm sure you've had more along your journey. I've had more. Did I have any before? You know, it is rare in my experience to have a complete sort of, you know, uh, extemporaneous and acorporal surrender of you know non-locative identity where I was fully identified with the vastness of the thing that has not happened much in totality like that my first yoga class ever though and I can't explain how or why because it was it was a great class it was just sort of a class you know it wasn't like there was no evidence to it what what the karma or the grace was that made that as as transformative as that was I will never be able to explain either. I was very uh, much on the path to ending my life. It wasn't, it was an untenable circumstance for me to be alive. I had, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I wasn't, I hadn't attempted suicide, but I just was, it was very thin. My capacity for engagement with the whole operation, I was in such a state of overwhelm so much of the time. And I was seeing a therapist twice a week and I was, you know, about to go on antidepressants, which just on the record, I have no problem with and have used, I did use later in my life. So I think it's important that teachers in the wellness industry are willing to admit that and share that. But I didn't want to, and I didn't end up at that time, I did postpartum with my son. So that's 2014, it's many years later. But the, the immediacy of access, of the yes to life that happened to me in in class and then in, you know in shavasana as the thing as the as shavasana brings the tears for so many of us where you just weep with with relief you know with pain still but with relief for finally being able to live in that grief finally being able to live it all and a sense of possibility of being well i mean i remember i started being depressed at seven years old not because of a precipitating specific trauma but just because that's what i came in with 
And I remember just sort of observing first grade, <laughs> second grade, that would have been, and, and, but I can picture the room and just not, and feeling like I was outside of life. And um, so it was this like profound surrender to, um, to all of it, you know, not to like, yeah, now I'm just gonna be happy forever, but like, okay, here is an entry point into life, which I would say has been the motivating factor of not only my practice, but my teaching for the entire time. How do we say yes to the whole operation, right? Everybody wants to say yes to the good stuff, which is a fine idea. Of course I do too, but that's not really what's being offered. What's being offered is all of it. And so if we don't have a strategy to say yes to the all of it, then we, we have a problematic strategy. So that's what I teach now mostly in the Corporeal Grace program, which we can talk more about later, but just sort of like, you know, I was teaching a training last week and I said, you know, in my summation, the teachings of, of, of the householder path of yoga, the two main words are yes and now. It has to be a yes into the whole thing. We have to join up with, in intimacy with what is here right that's that's obviously everyone knows that presence is is the thing that we're after but really what is presence it's not sort of a thought about being present it's not a watching in a non-dual spiritual tradition there's no witness outside there's a there's a fullness and an enrichment from the from the inside and the live present you know sort of tapestry of of the way this moment is telling you the story of life and you can touch it but by what means is that even possible it's through yes it's through our opening and obviously when now you know now is the first word of the of the yoga sutras of patanjali he says now we begin the practice of yoga which is so beautiful and it doesn't mean the now back then i forget what year that was written i don't want to say the wrong I, I always mess up the by hundreds of years so whenever that was um and 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 he means the now at whatever point the the practitioner is touching the book this now you know so that's a great question surrender yeah surrender is the main game right you know this is something else i was talking to a client about the other day which i think is you know i'm not making this shit up but is is, a, is an important articulation that, that surrender is not passive it's in fact really active you know surrender isn't the same as sort of maybe something that sounds more passive like acceptance where we just sort of have to just you know watch and and say okay you know because i don't know that acceptance is the right strategy all the time when shit's not okay like in the world there's a bunch of shit that i don't necessarily want to accept uh in the sense of it being fixed and that you have to accept its permanence like racism or bigotry or these are things to not accept in my opinion and i don't think a spiritual practice should make us more accepting of things that are unacceptable that's a different practice. That's a renunciatory practice where you leave the world and close your eyes and merge with God, which is a beautiful practice. But that's for, you know, monks and, you know, some, I guess, some priests, some nuns, and certainly the whole tradition in India of going to the mountaintop and just sort of, you take your death rights, you renounce the whole operation of attachments to the world. That's beautiful. You merge with oneness consciousness, but we're trying to break into the world. So then you have this idea of surrender which has as its basis an aliveness. And what aliveness has as its basis is evolution and diversity and change. And I don't just mean, you know, diversity amongst human beings, but the differentiation of things is what it has as its basis. It has as its basis something that's 
not fixed. So if you surrender actively in presence, you surrender actively to things that are coming and going. And so you surrender, you break into life through your active surrender, and then that's where things can actually change. But if we don't surrender with a yes, then you're actually saying no to what is happening, which is that things are coming and things are going. So surrender is this act, you know, to what, right? What happens is the, the surrender is into something beyond the sort of personal, smaller confines of your, of your limited identity. That's active. We actively give ourselves away in that moment and just sync up with life, you know? It's not just me, Gina, as an individual accepting. It's me surrendering into life. And so with that, temporarily sort of rupturing the, the confines of the smallness of my identity, and that's the, that's the means by which the surrender happens. So that's the yes that the yogis are talking about. And, you know, the reason we need spiritual practice is not like, to me, it's also, it's not the best, it's like, there's no better word than spiritual, but it's like, it's, I don't like it, because it seems like we're saying, like, there are things that are spiritual and things that aren't spiritual, which I just don't agree with. I don't, or I don't experience that, that way, and I don't teach it that way. It's more like, life is your practice. And if we use the word spiritual, it's just sort of, what is your means of access? into that, into a way of being enlivened into life in, 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 you know, and into a subtle enough place in your awareness, a a decongested and de, uh, distort, you know, undistorted enough aspect of your consciousness where you can really attune to a greater intelligence that's beyond the the sort of limited, like, I'm Gina, I like it, I don't like it. We, we, we attune to, you know, an energy and an intelligence that's that's bigger than ourselves. I'm not sure where that sentence goes or where it ends or where it started. <laughs> that access point of saying yes. Yeah. There's there's two ways, right? There's a there's a mental way of telling ourselves to say yes, and then there's a I I, I don't know the right word for it, kinesthetic, where we almost feel compelled to yeah. say yes and stay open. What is it? that yoga does, how does it create these neurological pathways for that opening? I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I won't mistakenly quote any facts there. I would point to a different teacher on that. One of the ways that I can answer this somewhat, at least intelligently, is, well, let me just say one thing. So what I I think a spiritual practice is for, again, barring the limitations of that word, you know, it's sort of a, I wrote, what did I write here? I thought I wrote something good. Um, it, it's sort of a twofold thing. One is, to, <laughs> I'll look at that later. Um, you know, you never know if it was actually good or if you just sort of thought it was. Well, okay, I'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, but it's sort of like, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it, they're, all the practices are tools and, and, and practices to attune the instrument of perception to what's already there a more subtle, a more vast, a more loving, a more wide field of intelligence than the one that operates just when I'm on lock around me, little me having my little life, which again, is not a problem. We're not trying to stop having our own lives. We're trying to make our lives the conduit for something that isn't just the individual though. So I would say what the tools of us, you know, having a really building a, a life that has, spiritual practice as its basis has to do with essentially two modes. One is, you know, increasing your capacity for attuning to that 
organizing intelligence that runs through you, but isn't just you, you know, so refining your instrument. And then the other is sort of removal of the distorting gunk that limits your access to that organizing bigger intelligence. Because again, with a spiritual practice, you're not adding something. You're not, there's not, it's not like we do something and then there's more intelligence. Then, you know, the vastness of the operation doesn't need us at all, right? We're just, we're part of its, its massive unfolding. So, so we don't add anything, but we refine our instrument, you know, almost like tuning a radio down to sort of be able to hear more and to hear from a subtler and subtler, subtler place and give away our sort of, and then the thing that gets removed or, or released to, to some degree are the, the aspects of samskaras, you know, the tradition calls it mostly the sort of residue or the accumulation of past experience that distorts our capacity to, to, to see the world clearly and to receive the bigger intelligence because we're on lock around our smallness. So one of the ways that I would say the yoga practice helps to, I was, you know, there's a, there's a big teaching that all necessarily sort of oversimplify, but there's a, um, there's a teaching that there are three main aspects of mind in this lineage, but the one that the yogis are quite interested in for meditation, especially is this thing called the buddhi. And that's the aspect of the mind where you discern the world, basically. It's the aspect of your mind that tells you, you know, how you are and how the world is and if you like it and if you like them and, or don't. Um, and that's the same aspect of your mind where all of your samskaras got, get deposited, where we store old shit. So what's happening is that you're trying to arrive to a conversation or to the day, but we don't just show up sort of right here, right now. We show up, especially when there are triggers for us, we show up in this sort of, you know, congested spaces that are extemporaneous and, uh, you know, that are, that are outside of time and outside of now, outside of time and outside of body. So I'm showing up to a conversation with you, but I'm really showing up, you know, historically. Now, contemporary understandings of trauma map exactly upon what the tradition has talked about for at least a thousand years, as far as I know, probably a lot longer. So one of the things that we do in practice is just sort of, they say meditation is the main way that these thickened places in our buddhi and that aspect of mind that discerns, meditation is the main way that that gets thinned out. So even your capacity to just know why, how and from where you think what you think or from where you want what you want has to get refined because otherwise we're, you know, we think we're seeing through the, the windshield, but the windshield has mud and wax and bugs all over it. So we're thinning out the distorting aspects that limit our access to, you know, the clarity and the grace of that vaster intelligence. That's one thing. And then we're increasing our access to the subtle just by habituating ourselves to it and sort of turning towards it and asking from it and offering to it. And, and then that avails us, of course, ultimately where all the practices would be, you know, how can we enter the world? Not just what happens when your eyes are closed, but what does that, what do those closed eyed states or those moment to moment practices that you start to learn as you go to, you know, farther into the path, what do those practices do in assisting us in being with each other and seeing each other and, you know, ultimately loving each other? You're so cute. You are. Can you talk a little bit more about asana and how that affects the asana. body and going yeah. to the subtle body as well as mind? Yeah. The, the purpose of mantra. Whoa. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. question. <laughs>
You want me to talk about asana first? Yes, please. There are differing and all very complex descriptions of the subtle body in different lineages, which I will spare you of because I can't in this moment do total justice to naming anyone over another. But there is a sense of the subtle body, including the physical body and also including the mind and emotional bodies, right? That, 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 is, a, that is a thing. And that in our physical asana practice, we're working upon all aspects. And that really it's the first touch for most people into, you know, certainly in the West into these conversations. And really it's a practice and embodiment and embodiment is the main game. I mean, it's the first and then continues to be a primary aspect of what we're after because the, the body is where life is, right? This is where like embodied presence is a somatic exercise, but it's not just that. It's not just me coming home to me and feeling into different places in myself, which are beautiful practices that have great value. But what, but what it also is, is me coming, this is something I talk about constantly, but we're coming into the pattern that life is iterating all the time. And the pattern is one which your body can never not it, utter, uh, iter, iterate, utter or iterate, which is, things are coming into being, things are being sustained and things are going out of being. Okay. So the body can never not do that. The body is, it's not like you're alive and that's a fact. And then at some point you won't be alive. It's like you're living constantly. So heartbeat by heartbeat, breath by breath, cell birth by cell death. This is the operation. Now the grace of the thing is that we have really nothing to do with that. You're not, you know, it, it's all autonomic, right? You're not making any of that happen. That's the gift of being alive. But in its being the gift of being alive, it's in the pattern of everything in nature, which is that everything is coming into being, being sustained and going out of being, whether it's this conversation or this day, which will sort of die itself into night and then birth again, or this thought. So the body, so, so our thinking obviously has the capacity to not live in that pattern. That's partly why thinking is problematic, not because we have a problem with thoughts, but we have a problem when our thinking gets very congested and essentially doesn't die properly when we get stuck with certain types of thoughts and they're usually the types of thoughts that tell us stories about how we are or how the world is. Those are the samskaras. I'm not safe or that person, I don't like that kind of person or I'm not good enough or all the fun things we can tell ourselves. And it's not necessarily that the problem is any, we're, we, if we live in a non-dual world, we're not saying that we accept, we don't accept hard things or bad things. We're saying there are bad things and there are good things, but they're all, they're all, they all have room at the table. But the problem is when things don't die properly, when they get fixed. And so then I can't show up in presence because I'm fixed in, in, a, in an historical event or in something far away or in some conjecture about the future. So we turn to embodiment, which is really, you know, nobody knows that that's what's happening when they come to their first yoga class. But when you come into your body and breath, you come into life. I mean, that's what happened to me. Like I have been so locked in my stories of suffering and like, and the biochemistry of it and, you know, whatever inheritances, you know, I remember one time asking my teacher, do you think that this thing we call depression is biochemical? Would you call it that? Or would you call, you know, or, or would you call it karma? And he said, same difference, which I found really helpful because it's like, whether we, you know, those are just different terms to sort of describe what you came in with. So, so for whatever reason, that was the operating system. And I was so in, enshrined in it, you know, not, not meaning to be, but not recognizing any other way that I was really 
not able to just access the day, couldn't even just live. So then I come into class and really for the first time, I'm instructed to breathe and live in my body and maybe to sense certain places, maybe to align something and also to be in the move, you know, in the flow practice of moving my body with the articulations and curves and the duration of my breath and to just live right in the middle of my life, which was now on this breath and this heartbeat and this, you know, however many cells have died and been born since we began this conversation, like life is happening. It's just iterating itself. That's what the Nataraj is doing in the, you know, that, that's what a lot of the iconography of the thing is, is showing you that life is sort of thumping like a drum. It's, it's existence. It's not just like alive, right? So when we come into embodiment, we come into the pattern and the organizing fact of life itself. And then we join up with something that's sort of beyond our personal identity, at least for that moment, because I'm joining up with the pattern that yes, is operating through me as like, you know, Gina here and now, but also it's operating in, in, in you certainly, and also in, in, in everything. So you sort of join up with by coming into asana, you know, by coming into the body and all of the really beautiful practices of, of embodied presence that, that are available, you come into the, the wisdom and alchemy of the body itself, which is that it's always in that pattern. It's always right in the middle of the life. It, it can't be anything else or it would be dead. And in which case actually it would still be in life. It would just be sort of compost and then it would take up a longer arc of becoming something else. But Everything is doing that. So my body is always present. My mind can join up with that. Mantra, you know, I am not a, a my focus and dedication in my practice, it's certainly I've done plenty of kirtan and chanting in my life, but that has not been my main focus, nor is it anything that I, you know, I don't lead kirtan nor teach japa mantra repetition. What I do teach and practice is mantra-based meditation. So the mantra that I would be best to, I mean, they're not entirely different conversations, but there are, I think, important differences, but, you know, mantra as, 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 as vibrational tool that's used in various ways and slightly different ones. If it's a, it's, if it's a japa, meaning the spoken mantra, the out moving lips and tongue is far as I remember the literal translation of japa, but that's when you chant out loud or maybe you use your mala to do, you know, walking meditation and say mantras or certainly kirtan and all that is, it, it's all in the same field. But what mantra meditation is, is, is a silently inwardly repeated mantra. It was initiated to meditation in several ways, but all through the TM lineage. Teachers who do not any longer teach TM organizationally, but teach instruct TM in the same manner or instruct their meditation in the same manner as TM. But what the, what the technology is there is that the mantra is sort of a bija, like a seed that hold, that is a, that, that, that can break open to sort of contain the entirety of the oak tree, if you will, of the plant that could grow from that seed. And then as you, as you repeat it quietly inwardly, it's like a vehicle that takes you on a naturally inward moving current of attention that already exists within all of us. And the mantra is the tool to access that inward moving current and it melts into subtler and subtler states. And in so doing, it assists in the release and attenuation or thinning out of those thickened places in our subtle body where we've sort of stored past action. So the benefit that's said to be there in mantra meditation 
um, is not just the benefit on any given meditation, which is, of course, there is always a benefit of, you know, calming the system and limiting the outward moving flow of attention enough to just sort of unwind to some degree. But, but the benefit of an ongoing, long-term, steady, dedicated practice is that it cumulatively unwinds or thins out these places where consciousness has, has sort of condensed. And so things can't move freely through because there's just stuck places from some old repeated story that got lodged somewhere. You know, we don't always know why, but just the stuck places within us, those stuck places can, can melt into fluidity again, can return to a moving form, can move into back into life, which is coming into being, being sustained and going out of being. It's not just fixed. So, you know, the, the yogis, the tantric yogis especially have incredibly complex systems of understanding the technology of mantra theory. You know, it's like a, the wild, I mean, I'm not even close to smart enough to understand it. And even to the degree that I do understand it, it would take quite a while to talk about and I'd want to be looking at texts, but it's like mantra theory is so complex and there's kind of, there's a sacred geometry and letters have assignations of different numbers and they all, I mean, the, the, it's a map. And, and what it's about is not just sound and not even just vibration, but it's really the sort of metaphoric explanation of how anything comes into being from where, from this kind of like what they call like the pre-discursive or the contentless field where sort of the potential of everything, but not yet anything, how it comes through. So whether it's like this thought that you're about to have or, or your life or the plant or the sun, arguably, like where does that shit come from and to where does it go? That's what they're talking about with mantra theory. How does anything manifest? from where and to where does it go? That's the whole interesting conversation. So whether it's sound or they use the teachings on sound to give a sort of cosmological, not sure if that's totally the right word, but um, explanation for how anything comes from to, to exist and from where it comes and to where it goes. So in, in the mantra meditation, you're sort of, you're taking a ride on this inward moving current through what they would call the technology of the mantra back to an increasingly subtle and subtle place. And then it deposits you eventually sometimes to what is called the transcendent, which is this place beyond differentiation. It could be called silence, but it's not silent. Silence like nothing. It's silence like, like everything, like the potential of everything. And of course, anyone who's ever meditated once knows that most of the time, that's not what you're experiencing. You're experiencing just like, thought, thought, thought. Um, and the, the technique of the mantra practice is so simple that it gives a very sweet and easy tool of, uh, to not try to do anything at all to your thinking, certainly not to try to stop your thinking. In, this tradition, in those traditions, you don't even identify the thinking. You don't spend any real time on the thinking because you're not trying to argue against the fact that your mind also moves out. That's what mostly it does. It thinks and it moves out and it looks out into the world and it, it's always moving in that direction. So we don't do anything against the outward moving current of the mind. We just, through the tool of the mantric vehicle, you have a, a way in. And so anytime you notice you're thinking, you promptly return to this sort of, it's sort of the thought of the inward sound of, of the mantra. Now in TM, you know, I'm not a representative of this. I, I never completed teacher training in those lineages for various reasons, but 
I do still practice it myself and I teach something else mantra based, but not in an initiatory TM way. But so I'm not representing it officially, but you know, so the mantra is not about the way we've sort of um, conventionally in the, the marketplace of spirituality come to understand mantra that it, you know, that I should have, one should have the mantra for what they need, like abundance or, you know, it's not a mantra that has a meaning per se, a secondary meaning of a thing that we might want to achieve or, you know, access. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a meaningless sound in the sense that it's a, it's based on a non-duality. So it's more like the sounds, the letters of the simple sound that you're given are like a container that the mind needs to, to have a vehicle in, but it, it quickly sort of the container of that vehicle breaks open and becomes ever more subtle where you're sort of interacting with the mantra at a more and more vibrational level, less at the level of just its letteriness. And then you access potentially this thing called the transcendent, which is sort of beyond that, beyond the duality. It is the main practice of my entire life at this point. And then all of the sort of ancillary practices that build around it, some of which I have sort of cultivated on my own and most of which I learned through a teacher named Paul Muller Ortega, who has a, a lineage that he has named Blue Throw Yoga. What do you teach? <laughs> well, I'll reserve a little bit of that for to 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 maintain a tiny bit of mystery. No, um, just so, I'll, what I will explain is that I do teach people to practice with a mantra. When I teach meditation, I teach for people who don't come with a mantra. If they come with a mantra, I say do that, and we just talk about all the other aspects of spiritual practices, of which there are many. But to my mind, meditation is the foundational necessity for most people in order to habituate the mind to go to the subtle and then the sort of the love relationship of the daily offering of devotion in a humble way of yourself to a daily practice is a very big life affirming act that avails you to making that commitment to lots of other things besides meditation but 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 meditation is foundational in the sense that without it most people have no idea what the inward moving current of their mind is <laughs> right? We just don't, you know, something happens when you sleep. It's pretty bananas and awesome and cool. And we rely on it to restore a lot of things. Like, where do you go when you sleep? So that's sort of interesting. We all know our consciousness isn't just our kind of awake mind, thinking mind, but in our awake mind, most people without a meditation practice or, you know, other means of sort of mystical access don't have a sense of their mind other than their thinking mind. You just don't. So you need meditation to even know what we would be talking about when we're talking about a subtilizing awareness or, you know, kind of source place of your thinking or all that stuff. So that's why it's foundational to get in the habit of, of turning towards that and to have a relationship with the place from which thoughts come and to which they go. But then it becomes in some ways, you know, I don't mean to say remarkable things can happen in meditation. It can be very mystical. I've had pretty extraordinary experiences. I've also had many, many, many sort of droll or seemingly not, you know, very just ordinary experiences. Um, but it's the basis for something in my experience, even much more glorious, which are these moment to moment practices and the way that it just shifts and shapes the way you experience life. It just does. Now, there are a lot of people who focus on the neurological facts, which you asked about before, uh, of, you know, and there are 
many studies, a lot of them on TM because it was well-funded, but also on uh, other mindfulness practices that, you know, has have brought this into the contemporary marketplace of like, everybody knows now meditation is a good idea. And that not only does it calm you down, but it has some bearing on, you know, neuroplasticity. What's interesting about that is that it maps almost perfectly onto the way that the yogis for a very long time, and I'm saying at least a thousand years, and probably a lot longer, have talked about this idea of samskara, which is described as the grooves that are left, the grooves that are left in consciousness, in the mind, in this buddhi. So they don't mean brain, but mind, which includes brain. The grooves that get left, and one of the ways that I've I've read it described that I think is is concise and and helpful is this: a samskara is like a footprints in the sand on the beach or like you know deep if you carved little rivulets to try to make the water run like you were going to build a cool little moat around your your uh sandcastle if you dug little rivulets the water would and, it, and the water comes in the tide comes in over that sand it's going to fall differently into those rivulets than it is into the smooth sand right it'll go it'll fall more deeply in so there are places in our consciousness they say because of you know repetitive or whatever combination of massive you know whatever combination of things that have left the samskata left those deep the samskatas are like those deep grooves in the sand so when life comes in in the form of the ocean as it flows over when experiences come in it flows over the grooves that are already there so if you have a groove for you know abandonment and something comes in, it's going to flow over that groove. So you're going to experience it differently than somebody who doesn't have that groove. Now they say that meditation is actually its main function is to assist in, you know, in, in, in making more flexible, those grooves, making them less rutted. And then, you know, contemporary neuroscientist says that's what's happening. Thousands of years later, that's what's happening. But the yogis already knew that they didn't need that. They had other instruments to know that they, now we have scientific instruments that can actually you know, do whatever they do with EEG and EKGs and talk about what's happening in the pulse oximeters and you know, what's happening in brains and bodies in meditation. And so everybody now knows that there's scientific proof, but yogis have known that and meditators have known that for a very long time because they have another instrument of perception. So, and you know, I don't understand it neurologically at all. Um, I don't even know for sure, you know, I understand it well, but not, I'm not a scholar, but I've studied very, you know, applied my mind to texts for years and years and years and have studied with really, really gifted scholars, brilliant scholars. And so I've learned a lot of this stuff and, and the best news I have is that it, it's worked for me. You know, it's, I have proof of my own instrument that my brain has actually changed. It's just habituated differently now. It's not a panacea. It's not like I don't have, you know, some of the pittings that I had that led to what I would call depression. I would call depression. Um, I do have some still, and it's not like a gone, the thing that I think you eradicate. It's not like surgical where you take out things, but the, the, the depth of the ruts is totally changed. And also the, um, the, the flexibility and facility with which the depressive instincts are in relationship with a broader sense of being alive. You, you weave yourself a sort of fabric of, of birth, of life, of, of being in, in, a, in a relationship with both the thing that's difficult, but you increase the size of the vessel. 
um, so that you can have a difficult experience, but it's not, first of all, it's not the only thing on the, on the paint, in the painting. And, and also it's, it's still, you're still alive. You just say, you just do the same thing, which is enter life into the thing that's difficult in the same way that you would want to enter life into the thing that's hard, uh, beautiful. You know, it's not just meditation and spiritual practice is not just as a remedy for the hard stuff. It, although, of course, that's how a lot of people come to it. And it's a great addition. I don't think it's adequate for everybody to only have a meditation practice. I think some people might need, I think therapy is a good idea. Some people might need a psychiatrist or, you know, I think that there's, there's misalignment in the way that the spiritual world with people who are on qualified and unlicensed to take full responsibility for, for their students' uh, mental health are trying to do so. I think that's problematic. And we have examples of even spiritual teachers who have, who have lost their lives over their own mental illness because they're unwilling to treat it or un incapable of, of treating it um, with the assistance of modern medicine, which sometimes is needed. I do have a passion for, and this isn't something I get to do really professionally because I don't have any licensure for it, but I do have a passion for being in conversation with women who are experiencing postpartum depression. I would love to, and you know, figure out more of a means of real access to those conversations, you know, without becoming licensed as a therapist, because I don't think that's my path. Um, but that was a massive event for me the first time I have two children. I have had several people referred to me through friends just to talk to and one of whom I would say we really well she said we saved her life just by you know and I would I don't even know who to tell this to but I would be willing to be on the phone through any time of the night with any stranger forever in the world who would choose to trust me not as a therapist or someone licensed to treat I would only be working in conversation with their psychiatrist probably but but to be a person who has lived through it and, and is in love with my children um, and chose to have another one <laughs> after that experience, which I definitely couldn't have. But, but the gravity of that situation is massive. It's, you know, that, that was an experience unlike anything I've ever had. So I have a passion for that specifically, but also mental illness or, you know, mental health in general, um, that spiritual practice has been presented as something that can fix that. And I don't think that's actually fair or correct. In some cases, it certainly is not a bad idea. It can't do anything but assist. But whether it's adequate or not is not, I don't think is always true. And I think that the presentation of it is though that should just be enough. If you just do some breath work, keeps people in suffering sometimes longer than they need to because the, the stigma against getting other types of assistance to work in companionship with your spiritual practice is you know, the stigma against that is so strong that people don't, there's so much self-loathing that keeps people from doing that. And then the spiritual marketplace is sort of adding to that by telling them they shouldn't need to. So, you know, for a long time, I didn't want to talk about my depression because who does really PS, it's not that fun. And it seems like, you know, it's very vulnerable. And also you, you are a spiritual teacher. So you're supposed to be like, yeah, be like me. I'm doing great. You know, because you sort of think like, why would people want to take your class if you're like, so I'm depressed um, and I'm not currently, I'm quite well, but I have depressive instincts. They've come up in COVID stressors, the, you know, mismanagement of the way I hold stress and the kind of a hypervigilance and hyperarousal that happens in my body. Like it's, it's there. I, I have tools to work with it and the basin 
you know, the bottom is there. I can, I have a container in which I'm held all the time. So it's never catastrophic, but I took antidepressants at postpartum and it's hundred percent saved my life. 100%. And anybody who feels, you know, bad about that or that they, you know, if they're, you know, I don't, take any medicine. I don't really take Advil. I certainly haven't taken antibiotics in probably 20 years. Like, you know, I don't take, I'm not into it. I would have loved to take whatever, you know, St. John's word and all the things, but it wasn't adequate. It wasn't adequate at the time. And, you know, I came to understand it as part of what's holistic. It's part of what's available in this time that we live. So yes, there's a problem with a sort of excessive prescription and the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is fucked and are you allowed to swear on these things? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I already have like 10 times. I just noticed, um, you know, but, uh, you know, so you like, and it's not that great. I don't, I, you know, but it's great. It was the best tool and it enabled me to get back into my life and be with my family. And, and I feel like that is sort of under talked about, not sort of very, and I think that that has pretty catastrophic event, you know, circumstances. Not that everyone's going to end up having a massive depressing event, but it just leads, it, it contributes to shame, if nothing else. You know, even for people who aren't having a massive depressive event or don't even technically have a biochemical depression, like we have an, intoler we, we have an intolerance to certain types of emotional landscapes, both culturally, just in the general sort of Western or I'll to speak for this country, because that's where I always lived mostly. You know, we have an inheritance that like, just put on a happy face is the sort of way we're supposed to run the show. And then of course that gets mapped very much on top of spiritual practice that we think when I'm in the flow, that means a certain type of emotional space where I'm just open and loving and generous and sh shiny, happy. And it's like, there's nothing in nature that's like that all the time. There's no indication that that's the successful result. It's not what's being offered. You're being offered a life that has winter, has death, has spring, has birth, but it's all fucking here. And if we don't have means by which we can live into the whole thing, we are not only being dishonest, we're, we're in shame. And we're potentially really suffering and, and also increasing the suffering in each other by not being willing to admit that, you know, it's not just depression, but it's like, just who are you when you sit on the couch, you know, watching Netflix for too long? Are you no longer, you know, successful spiritually? Bullshit. But it's, you know, the, the, the practice point is into the fullness, uh, you know, to the degree that we can, your, your value doesn't decrease when you're in on the couch watching Netflix being just ordinary. And in fact, what's wrong with being ordinary? What, what the, the sort of ex, the excessive narcissism that goes with trying to be sort of special in every moment is certainly not helping anybody out. Really what we want is to, yes, like have the best most expressive life you can have and certainly love as best as you can and make as best a contribution as you can a lot of that has to do with privilege as much as spiritual power i've said that in air quotes which you can't see here on a recording <laughs> mostly i think what we're after is giving ourselves away more you know not trying to perfect me activate and actualize and take you know be be successful be unwavering like these are not things that nature is your value doesn't 
diminish when you're unsure or just sort of like having a bad day or having the general malaise of the 11, 12 months of a global pandemic. Like there's no reason to expect that we would be shiny and happy all, all the time. That's not the, that's not the flavor of this moment. That's not to say that we're trying to be like miserable and of course there are glimpses of beauty and all the time. And that's really what we're after is being there for those and being there for the difficult things. So the spiritual practice is to arrest our tiny self enough to be fully alive and present as often as we can. That's all it's for. Not just to try to change the way you feel though. Not just to try to make, you know, replace a negative thought with a positive thought. No, not, not always. I don't think that's an effective strategy. But if we can break open into life, we break open into a glimpse of the sort of bliss that has no opposite. That's a gorgeous idea. Chamatkara is the Sanskrit word for, for the bliss that has no, has no opposite. So it's not the bliss at a conventional level, like regular joy, which certainly does have an opposite, which would be like, you know, agony or something. It's sort of just the bliss of presence. And you start to learn how to be into presence, into the sort of reservoir and vast resource and treasure of your own presence into yes joy because you certainly have to be there for that party because you could have wonderful things going on and you know be distracted or anxious or mad or you know and not be there for that party but also into the into the difficult thing same strategy you get back to the yes so that has been a key piece of unwinding the sort of you know the less biochemical more kind of thought habituation of my of this depressive aspect of my existence which is to is just to be with be with those two be alive there too and and of course that avails you to to the joy and the pleasures of life as well how does someone come to you is it mainly word of mouth how, how do your students and clients find you um yeah, that's a good question. Well, I, I, I resisted for a long time, the social media, the social media, and I now have this little tiny baby Instagram uh, presence, which people are welcome to find me there, Gina Zimmerman Yoga. Almost sure that's what it's called. I have a website called ginazimmermanyoga.com. I work, so yes, I would say at least until very recently, the main or maybe only way has been word of mouth and then you know I was teaching at studios and so people just didn't hear about the studio and then come to you that was my main uh, entry into teaching was was asana and then we'd have other types of conversation I launched officially something that had been sort of something I've been doing uh, more vaguely without without really the business model for it but I launched officially last year something called corporeal grace which is my one-on-one -on -one spiritual practice program it's a mentorship program it's sort of in the model of coaching, but I certainly don't identify as a coach. It's, I, it's a mentorship in the sense that we work together for a set period, for not a set period, it can, it can extend, but for a, for a committed period of time to develop a really robust, meaningful spiritual practice. And, it, you know, so meditation as its basis, but these other readings and teachings and then practices and, and an increasing understanding that really assists in this idea of, of, of finding our way in to life through practice, right? Not that I have a life and then my spiritual practice is this like thing I do. Although obviously there are things to do, but it's more just that like spiritual practice gives you access to your whole life and assists in, in the things we 
maybe have some say over like helping bring things in and helping let things go and then also just getting on board for the party of what life is doing which is moving through us and we can be enlivened with it so we work together over a period of time people get you know so we have uh, weekly at first and then sometimes it becomes bi-weekly sessions remote sessions and then there are practices that they're given in between so try out this breath practice for this week or and they have a folder google drive with a readings folder within it and a practices folder within it and we sort of work within and then they write to me in the week between our sessions to sort of with a several questions that I have on this form on my website that they just fill in to sort of help me land where they are but I always say I take a certain number of people and I limit it at a certain number I won't go over because I did last summer and it was too much for me to it was just not the right amount I know the right amount now but I so I hold each of those people in the at the altar of my heart and so in addition to the time that we have on the uh, calls together I'll sit and sort of sit with either what they've written to me or if they haven't written to me, just sort of sit with them energetically and, and ask, you know, what can I bring in for this person? So sometimes I'll get just little intuition streams about a reading that might work for them or a practice. And we do practices to release and we do practices to, to break in to life. But there definitely are plenty of practices to let shit go to, you know, limiting belief systems and places where we're really stuck. Some mantras for that out, out loud mantras. And I've been very heartened and touched to see how connected people have been to it and how, how it's, wor it's really working. You know, I waited a long time to launch this program because I just really wanted to be sure that I had a, a strong and meaningful offering to make. And I practiced a long time and still do to avail myself to being able to really be the vessel for this thing. But, you know, there are a few things that I teach that certainly none of it is new i'm not making anything up but there's a few things that i teach that aren't that well spoken about in my experience in the world of sort of what's out there i'm sure it's around but some core teachings on sort of why like what is the why that leaves us feeling lacking and and not having access to this sort of enlivened fullness that we seek why do we all know that there's sort of that is an aspect of us this kind of interconnected wholeness, aliveness, and why do we feel so far from it? And there's some pretty good explanations out there in the tantric lineage of sort of what happens. And then with that right understanding and with a couple of key practices that I, we repeat and we do again and again to just land in people's lives, you start to be able to reverse course back to that fullness that's already there. So we don't add anything that's not there, but we attune to something that we're yearning for really profoundly, we're thirsting for really and it's there, but so, and you know, I, I it varies um, how long people work with me, but uh, six months is where people, that's the, I used to have a four month minimum. Now I have a six month minimum because I've just seen that that's what's necessary. Most people have continued beyond that. Um, so we make a commitment of a, you know, financial and other and, and energetic commitment and it's written commitment as well to work together for that time. But the idea is to work together for a period of time and then of course for them to be set free you know it's not like teaching private yoga where that could be for the rest of your life or not like therapy where that could be for years and years it's really like let's work together for this period of time let's invest in this and then hopefully you know that we, a tbd amount of time six plus months that we mutually come to um and then you're equipped to continue with this you know like the the idea would be to not need me it's not about me but it is about having somebody who is in your corner and somebody can hold the space and really just help to up level the commitment 
Um, I think so many people, you know, I can't do it for you, obviously. I still can't make anybody do it. But I think that for so many of us, you know, one of the reasons that I designed the program to be one-on-one, I'm considering other ways to have, you know, other entry points into my offerings besides, you know, I'm doing some intermittent workshops if people, you know, can sign up for the newsletter. And I just did a five-day meditation training that was 50 bucks. So I have plenty of other it was very well, you know, intentionally set at an accessible amount. Um, I did it with light and space and it was very beautiful. So I'm, I'm increasing the kind of variety of things that I'm offering. But the reason that I wanted the, the, the bulk of my work to be corporeal grace in a one-on-one format is that you may have had this experience and I certainly have of many courses that I've signed up for, you know, especially now with the online reality where it's just pretty hard to keep the commitment, you know. Even if, you know, I've, and, I've, and, I've, and I've been in courses with very gifted teachers, you know, some ma- people wait, masters well beyond myself. Um, but if you just have a call that's at 2 p.m. or 5 p.m. on Tuesdays or something, it's just, you know, it's usually like doesn't take very long before you're behind. And then, of course, you can get the recording, but like who does the recording? And then, you know, life is demanding for all of us to varying degrees, but for all of us, it's, it's demanding in terms of what has to get done in a day. And so, you know, I think the one-on-one format, and, and in addition to just having the accountability of it being just you and me, or just the person and me, um, it is it is customized. It's not a course. I'm not like then on week one. There's this, you know, it's there's a certain things that I teach to some degree to everybody, but there's a lot of things that are different because, you know, we really do get at like what are your core belief systems? What is really happening? How can we unwind those? And I'll think of a text that you know maybe I read years ago that I haven't shown anybody in a long time that I think is applicable. So it's really the best bet I think we have for somebody who's not necessarily with me, but a one-on-one program is the best bet I think for most of us to really uplevel the kind of the 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 degree to which you want this to flourish in your life, like to really just be that that's what you're operating with. Not like you're operating in excellence all the time or whatever that whole thing. Just that like this the, the practices that are present. You can turn towards them, you feel them present, you you remember to sort of, you know, do this practice for digesting old past actions. You do this practice, you know, and they're there and they're there. And they and we work together long enough that they get landed enough that, you know, then a person continues without me and the practices are still there. So that's my, um, my great passion uh, in teaching is that work. I really bring the best that I have to offer and I refine my capacity all the time. And then, you know, I love retreats. That's probably my favorite thing to teach, but like, I don't know when that's happening again, but those will be upcoming at some point. Um, I mean, people are starting to do retreats. I don't have anything on the books for this year. Yes, should I look at what my Instagram name is? I should be a little more. Yeah, yeah. I should be a little less just dysfunctional on this. It, you know, I, uh, modern day yogi. <laughs> Gina Zimmerman yoga. Yeah. And then the website is Gina Zimmerman yoga.com. So that is there. You know, I, I, I recognize the function of it to let people sort of get to know you a little bit. Um, and so I'm trying to engage with it for that reason. I think, it just doesn't come very naturally to me. So it's taking me a while, but um, you know, thus far, everyone who's done the one-on-one program has known me already at least a little bit. So to be willing to take that dive and make that commitment both in time and in money and in trust, um, you know, I can understand why somebody would need to get to know me a bit before that. So that's one way to do that. And that's why I'm engaging with it. I do have an offering um, to 
I keep one spot open for free for a young queer person of color. They don't have to be that young, but I, I can, the Conscious City Guide is the best moment. I have a couple of avenues with which I was offering that, but currently Conscious City Guide is the way that that's offered. So that's available if anyone wants it and is, you know, feels willing to trust me to be their teacher. It's, it's a privilege Amazing. and yeah, you know, I'm very open to finding other ways to engage and to, to work collaboratively and collectively. And that's just all sort of opening up. Are you a doula too? No. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you were. No, I taught prenatal yoga for a long time and I have taught it a lot, but no, I'm not a doula. No. How do you juggle all this? Being a mother, being a wife, being a teacher, having time to yourself, meeting all these people once a week? Well, my friend, sometimes better than others, is what I will tell you. Yeah, sometimes better than others. I have a, my husband has a job where he travels. And so it was mostly uh, sidelined for all of last year. And so that enabled me to really go full hog into my teaching. I have an office. That's where we are right now. Um, and, and, and he's really, and I'm not the only person who says, says this, is a, he is a blessed, gifted, tremendous example of what it can be to be a father so i have his support not just support like he's home but the grace with which he just like went you know two little kids at home with no school and just got into it and made it you know sometimes boring but often very magical for them and always you know with patience and love was enabled me to really turn towards this it's been a big adjustment because he was traveled so much prior to that that i was very primary and teaching in a much smaller portion of so, you know, as a readjustment, I, I, I sometimes feel like there's not that much left for them and certainly in terms of time in the day. So I just do my best to show up with as much presence as I can. My practice does, is a non-negotiable. I mean, I, I miss it sometimes. My meditation practice, my physical practice falls secondary to that. Um, so, and I, don't, and, I, and I think it's important. I think I need more of it. But when I don't have much time to do asana, I do um, a 15 minute practice of five minutes of just sort of like simple shoulder opening and simple, simple movement, five minutes of headstand and five minutes of shoulder stand, because I've just found that the inversion practice moves so much energy so quickly that that's been imperative or, and I do a lot of breath fire. So I usually like, if I don't have a full hour plus to do, you know, to have a big walk or to do an asana practice of my own, I um, will do that condensed practice before my meditation. And that's been quite sustaining. But no, I mean, do I do it with grace all the time? No, no. I get tired, I get grumpy, and I return. You know, what do we all do? I don't know. I have one kid back in school and like hippie preschool and that's outside and I have one on Zoom exclusively. So it's a lot. But I feel, you know, what's interesting is that, and I get really tired. I, I run tired as a person sort of sometimes I'm not somebody with a massive amount of energy but I never feel tired when teaching I always feel that I can turn to something that that assists and grounds and avails me to you know to really show up you know obviously sometimes I do a great job sometimes not a great job but but to really just be there with with the person and turn towards the place from which I teach. And, you know, if I can teach well, 
or to the degree that I do teach well, which is of course a thing that you develop mastery over time. So it's an, it's a thing that's in process, but to, to the degree to, to which I do teach well, it's, it's about knowing how because of my practice to turn towards that subtler source place and to really be with in presence in listening to hear the thing, you know, be with them when they're saying things and also hear maybe what isn't being said and attune to someone else's experience enough to really, um, you know, to really guide and assist. Um, but for a long time, you know, my, I was teaching and it was going pretty well in terms of like full classes and stuff. And people would be like, what are you going to do next? Like, what's your thing? And like, want, you should do a thing. And I just was like, I'm just going to practice more for a long time because that was the, you know, that was the way that I was a teacher was and is the way that I'm a teacher is through, through my own practice. Teaching feels quite different than doing my own closed eye practice. Obviously I do sort of have to turn on a different, you know, you have to move in a different direction. You have to turn on different aspects of your personality and character and whatever. But the means by which I teach is the same thing that I've contacted through practice. I basically do my best to give myself away and to be in a place of being a recipient of the best I have can be, you know, I can, that can move through me in any moment. So that's a way that I've learned to, you know, to, to, to remain energized for teaching even when I am maybe like tired also. Was it a choice for you to leave the city? Did you specifically want to go to Ojai when you were living in LA? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm planning my exodus, but Hawaii, not Ojai. Oh, good. Beautiful. Yeah, it was time. For me also, you know, I mean, I grew up in cities, so, uh, but I didn't, I didn't know how to raise my kids there. So that was part of the motivation was just to have, you know, a different pace and a different, and, a, and sort of different terms of existence for them, at least in early childhood. You know, Ojai has its problems in terms of being basically all, mostly white and you know, limiting in terms of some, some ways that they experience what the world is. But for early childhood, it's quite incredible. And then for later, they're only four and six. So, in, you know, later we'll see. Did you, so you taught, when did you stop teaching? So long ago. Like 10, eight years ago, something like that. Uh, 10 years not, ago, I left not at all. Mexico. Yeah. No, not at all now. Uh, I do healing work sometimes with people, but it's mainly word of mouth with friends yeah. in a link just because I experienced so much crap, Gina, with men trying to hit on me. Um, they think it's something, but it's not. There's just this preconceived notion and hope Yeah, that something else will happen. And plus at the time I was so young, I was still in my 20s. Oh, so young. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think I will get back to it later when I don't have to rely on it for money where it's just something yeah. that I offer, maybe in my 50s or something like that. Yeah. Late 40s, but. No, yeah, that makes sense. Now. It's better when you're, yeah, yeah. Older. It does get better. Yeah. I mean, I'm 43, so it's like, I mean, it already is better. You can, your container is different and the boundary is different and maybe you're not as, you're not as cute anymore, which is helpful. Or yeah, you're like sort of not more a wrinkle than gravity, not on my yeah. back. <laughs> Wait, how old are you now? I'm 34. Mm -hmm. Growing up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you in a relationship? No, I'm not. 
Do you want to be or you, do you like it like that? Or both? Sure. If I find the right person, I just haven't found the right person. Took a long time for me. Yeah, no one that I'm looking at were even remotely interested. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the values are different here is what I've noticed. Oh, in LA, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to end up with a farmer, you know, mm -hmm. that's farmer on the big island. What I ended. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's, do you want to see my kids? Just a little. Just yeah. This is this one. One boy, one girl? Yeah. Oh, oh wow, the boy is your twin. He is oh, my no twin. Way. Um, he it's is my enough. twin. Wow. My personality twin too. Yeah, she's so much like Frank and he's so much like me. Sebastian. Oh, what a joy. You're a joy. So nice to get to see you. Nice to see you too. This was so right. nice. I appreciate you. Thank you, Gina. Bye. Lots Bye. of love. Mwah.